One of the strangest and saddest ironies in all of human history is the fact that the Jewish people murdered their own Messiah. They had been taught to look for the Messiah, anticipate the Messiah, long for the Messiah, wait for the Messiah, expect the Messiah. But when he came on the scene, they rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they saw to it that he was murdered by means of crucifixion. This was a major theme in the preaching of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. Let me show you this by way of introduction to our text this morning. Let's begin our time in the Word in Acts chapter 3. So after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look at Acts chapter 3, and I'll give you the background story here in Acts 3. As Peter and John were going to the temple to pray one day, they came across a lame beggar. Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, was a doctor. He made sure to note the fact that this man's condition was congenital. The man was over 40 years old, according to chapter 4, verse 22. His legs, no doubt, were atrophied because he had never used them. For over 40 years, he had been carried wherever he went. Someone carried him daily to the temple so he could beg. Whoever carried him placed him at the gate of the temple called Beautiful. This would have been a good place to get gifts because people going to and from the temple often had a soft spot in their hearts for someone in this condition. When Peter and John walked by the man, he asked them for a gift of money, but Peter gave him something far more valuable. God used Peter to heal the man's paralyzed legs. And this was a real miracle. For one thing, it happened immediately. It can't be explained away by ascribing it to natural causes. This man had never even learned to walk, and yet in an instant he was leaping. He went right into the temple with Peter and John to express his gratitude to God for his great mercy. Luke tells us it was the hour of the evening sacrifice, so many would have been present in the temple complex, and this attracted a huge crowd in Solomon's porch, which was a colonnade running the length of the east side of the outer court of the temple. The people gathered to see this man because they were so amazed, and God wanted to get the attention of this multitude so Peter could preach to them. That's exactly what he does in chapter 3, verses 12 through 26. We'll only look at two or three of the verses, beginning in verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Notice that Peter began by addressing them with respect, but he didn't compromise the truth. He made it clear that they, the Jewish people, had rejected their own Messiah. He reminds them that Pilate was determined to let Jesus go, but the Jewish people insisted that Jesus be crucified. At least four times, four different times, 
Pilate tried to talk them into letting Jesus go, but every time they refused. Instead, they wanted Barabbas released. Verse 14 says, But you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. This is a strong contrast that Peter is making. Pilate, who was a pagan Gentile ruler, wanted to release Jesus, but the Jewish people, God's chosen people, refused. They asked for a murderer to be released rather than Jesus, who was holy and just. Everything he did in every relationship was right. His life was characterized by integrity of character and conduct. Jesus was holy and just, and yet the Jewish people asked for his blood. In verse 15, Peter said, And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. You killed the author of life. Not only had they asked for the release of a murderer instead of Jesus, they became murderers themselves. They killed the very author of life. Think about it. They killed the author of life and asked for a murderer. What a contrast. This is something Peter emphasized almost every time he preached to the Jewish people. As you well know, Peter denied the Lord out of fear. But once he got victory over that, he was bold and fearless. That is such an encouragement to me. It encourages me to know that my weaknesses can actually be turned into a strength by God's grace. Beloved, don't dare believe that the weaknesses you have in life are unconquerable. They are not. Face them with the Lord like Peter did and allow the Lord to give you victory over them. Don't try to justify them or rationalize them away. Face them head on rather than running from them and allow the Lord to give you victory over them. Peter denied the Lord on several occasions, but he repented, sought the Lord's forgiveness, and he learned from his failures. And once he got victory over that, he was bold and fearless. Back in chapter 2, back up to the previous chapter, in his very first sermon, he boldly stated to the Jewish people that they had murdered their own Messiah. Chapter 2, verse 22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now this is interesting because, as you know, the Jews really didn't carry out the crucifixion. The Romans did. But Peter, in preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, said, You took him by lawless hands, you crucified him, and you put him to death. And down in verse 36, as Peter continued his sermon, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What a bold accusation for Peter to make. Skip over to chapter 4, just a couple pages to the right. Chapter 4, verse 10. Peter says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands before you whole. Now look at that statement. Even when Peter didn't have to bring it up, he made sure to insert the fact that the Jews were responsible for the murder of Jesus. The very next chapter, he says it again. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, that is this council that are this council that put the apostles on trial. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with this with your doctrine and, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Peter may have denied the Lord three times out of fear, but once he was restored, he was fearless. In chapter 10, he's added again. Skip over a few pages to the right to chapter 10, verse 38. Peter says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Peter never let it rest. He made it clear that the Jewish people murdered their own Messiah. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. But the Jewish people insisted that he be crucified. We saw that very clearly in our consideration last week of Mark 15. And now we return this morning to that same chapter. So turn with me back to the left, if you will, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, as we continue our series through Mark's Gospel. Please follow along as I read verses 15 through 25 of chapter 15. Mark 15, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. They clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, And began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. This is Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
No matter what I say, I cannot do justice to the profoundness and the depth of what is recorded in these words. This is when the sinless Son of God took our sin and bore the wrath of God so that we will never have to go through that experience. Mark describes it with simplicity because the profound nature is not in the words that are used to describe it, but rather in the reality of what took place on that day. According to John's gospel, it was six o'clock in the morning when Pilate gave the sentence for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus had already suffered abuse from some of the Jewish mob back in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 65 says, Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This is where the abuse began from the Jews in the middle of the night, but now it's about to begin to happen from the Romans here in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 15 tells us, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. It's very easy for us to skim past the part of this verse where we have the word scourged. It's very easy to jump past that to think about the crucifixion But we dare not skip past the statement without understanding it. Scourging was so damaging to the human body that it sometimes would kill the person being scourged. Few retained consciousness through it. It was so severe that Roman custom was that a man could either be scourged or crucified, but not both. Jesus went through both. He was crucified, yes, But first he was scourged. A scourge was a leather whip that had pieces of bone or metal embedded in its leather strips. It was said that 40 lashes could literally cut a man in half. It literally tore a man's back to ribbons. We don't know how many lashes Jesus received, but whatever the number happened to be was severe. Pilate was probably hoping that the people would take pity on Jesus after seeing him scourged, but that didn't work. Jesus was scourged. That didn't pacify them. So then he was crucified. The end of this verse tells us that after Jesus had been scourged, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. Beloved, understand something. It could not have been any other way. The fact that Jesus died by crucifixion fulfills so many of the prophecies in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. Psalm 22 is one of the most prominent and specific passages of the Old Testament predicting the crucifixion of the Messiah. And what is amazing about that psalm is that it describes crucifixion with such amazing detailed accuracy, and yet it was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even practiced. It wasn't even known about when Psalm 22 was written. Isaiah 53 is another Old Testament passage that describes in amazing detail and accuracy crucifixion. 
Also, the uplifted serpent in the book of Numbers pictured the fact that the cure for sin would come as a result of a lifting up. Jesus used that picture in John 3, 14 and 15 when he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Then John adds this statement in verse 33. This Jesus said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus had to die by crucifixion. Had Jesus been killed by the Jews, he would have been stoned to death. That's the way they killed people. He would have been stoned to death. That would have violated biblical prophecy. Therefore, God in his sovereignty saw to it that the Romans were in control at this time of history so Jesus would be crucified. So don't skip over the end of this verse too quickly without realizing the sovereign hand of God has set everything in place to fulfill his purposes. In fact, to further substantiate that God is in control of this incident, all you have to do is compare this verse with Romans 8.32. This verse says, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. Pilate delivered him. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, now listen, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who delivered Jesus to be crucified? From a human standpoint, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. From a divine standpoint, God delivered Jesus to be crucified. Which one is true? Both are true. Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified, but in doing so, he was working with the hand of God, or you could almost say he was working as the hand of God. Yet that doesn't justify his action. It doesn't excuse his action in any way. It doesn't in any way take away from his responsibility for failing to do what was right and just and release Jesus. Verse 16 tells us, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. When I first read this verse, not only here but in Matthew's Gospel and was studying the crucifixion years ago in detail, I wondered why the Roman soldiers expressed so much animosity toward Jesus. What had he done to them? What had he done to Rome? But as I read on, the picture became clear. The soldiers inflicted all their abuse on Jesus because of their hatred for the Jews. The Jews hated the Romans. The Romans hated the Jews. So when the Roman soldiers came to understand that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews and was called the king of the Jews, the soldiers vented their animosity toward Jesus. The first thing they did was to gather, Mark tells us here, they called together the whole garrison. And Matthew's gospel, the way it reads, says they basically surrounded him. So the first thing they did was to surround Jesus. 
That made it clear that they were going to abuse him. Mock him. Verse 17 says, And they clothed him with purple. First they, Matthew tells us, stripped him, then clothed him with purple. They clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. This was done to humiliate him and to make fun of him. They stripped him to humiliate him. And they put a scarlet robe on him to make fun of him. And when you see this reference here to thorns, it says they twisted a crown of thorns. Don't picture in your mind a little thorn from a rose bush or something similar to that. The thorns in Israel were our thick, long thorns that sometimes measured over two inches in length. These weren't little prickly thorns. This crown of thorns, when mashed down upon the head of Jesus, would have dug deep into his scalp. So this episode involved intense physical pain in addition to the mocking and the treating him with contempt. And think about this. According to Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, thorns were part of the curse on sinful humanity. Thorns. So when the soldiers placed the crown of thorns on Jesus, it was quite a picture of God's curse on sinful humanity being thrust upon Jesus. He bore the curse for sin. Not only literally, but even in this symbolism of a crown of thorns on his head. Verse 18 says, They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. The physical and verbal abuse that Jesus suffering, suffered during all of this is beyond comprehension. Not to mention the degrading indignity of having soldiers spit on him. You ever had anyone spit on you? Multiple times? Multiple people? Spit in your face? Spit on your back, your chest, your neck? There was so much anger and hatred being spewed at Jesus. God help us if this doesn't make us tremble. The only perfect and innocent man ever to live was subjected to some of the worst treatment endured by any human being. There was no sympathy for what he had already suffered at the hands of the Jewish mob back in chapter 14. There was no sympathy for the scourging he had already endured from the Roman soldiers. The abuse and the torture was piled upon the precious Lamb of God. And verse 20 tells us, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Notice that last phrase, they led him out. That perfectly fulfills Isaiah 53, 7, which says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. 
You know, you and I read this, well, they led him out to be crucified, and we think, oh, sure, Mark's just telling us what happened. They led him out. No, no, the first century reader, that would, have, that would have been an attention getter. You know why? Because usually the victim would be dragged away screaming and yelling, but not Jesus. They led him out. He was led away in silence. Verse 21 says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. We know from John's gospel that Jesus started out bearing his own cross. That was common, the common practice for victims of crucifixion. However, because of all that Jesus had gone through already, he didn't have the strength to complete the trek. For one thing, you will remember, it wasn't that long ago that he had sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. In addition, who knows when the last time he had had sleep. Furthermore, he had been slapped around by the Jewish mob back in chapter 14. Then he was subjected to scourging. And after that, the Roman soldiers knocked him around on the head with their fists and the wooden scepter they had given him to mock him. As a result of all of this, Jesus simply didn't have the strength to carry his cross all the way to the crucifixion site. So Simon was pulled in to complete the task, to help Jesus get the cross to the site. Simon was from the North African city of Cyrene, and he was on his way to Jerusalem for some unknown reason, probably there to celebrate Passover. Mark tells us here in this verse that Simon was the father of a man named Rufus. And this is interesting. According to Romans 16, 13, Rufus eventually became a believer in Jesus. So it is possible that this experience though we don't know if it impacted Simon spiritually, it's possible that somehow this impacted Simon's son Rufus to become a believer in the Lord Jesus. If that was the case, then although the Roman soldiers grabbed Simon out of the crowd at random to carry the cross, it wasn't a random choice in the sovereign plan of God. Simon's son Rufus is listed in Romans 16, 13, as a believer in Jesus, and so is Simon's wife, interestingly. Nothing is ever said anywhere else in the New Testament about Simon being a Christian. If he wasn't, isn't it amazing how people from the same family can be exposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and some choose to follow him, and others choose not to? If Simon wasn't a believer, and I say if because we don't know for sure, but if he wasn't a believer, then he probably saw this requirement to carry the cross of Jesus as a nuisance. It was probably an interference with his plans, his schedule. He's coming out of the country, the verse says, coming from the countryside into Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the Roman soldiers grab him and say, carry this cross, and you don't say no to Roman soldiers. This was an inconvenience, which is how many people see Jesus. They see him as a nuisance, an interference with their own plans. If Simon was a believer or did become a believer, then he would have seen this as a tremendous privilege 
to carry the cross of Jesus to the crucifixion site. Verse 22 tells us, And they brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. The place was called Golgotha in Hebrew. The Latin equivalent is something that most people are more familiar with. It is the term Calvary. Both words, Hebrew, Golgotha, Latin, Calvary, both words mean skull, which may refer to the fact that the place was a skull-shaped hill, or it may have acquired the name because it accumulated the skulls of the victims of crucifixion. There are two places in Jerusalem today that claim to be the spot where Jesus was crucified and buried. One of them is located within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the old city of Jerusalem. And the other one is right outside of the old city walls on the north side, just shortly after you go out the Damascus Gate on the north, and it's called Gordon's Calvary or the Garden Tomb. The evidence isn't easy to sort through because there are historical issues and archaeological issues and all of that, but it doesn't really matter which tomb Jesus isn't in because he isn't in any tomb. He was crucified, but he rose from the dead. So we don't know with certainty the exact site, but the people of the first century in first century Jerusalem would have known exactly where it took place. They could have just said it took place on Golgotha. It took place on Calvary, and everyone would have known exactly where that was located. Verse 23 says, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This mixture was used as a sedative to deaden the pain of people being crucified. And maybe you wonder, hold it. I thought they were trying to torture people being crucified. Why would they want to deaden the pain? Well, they would want to deaden the pain to extend the crucifixion. So the person's body would not shut down from the pain too quickly. So it wasn't really something that was an act of mercy. It was used as a sedative to deaden the pain, but Jesus refused to take it so as to take the full brunt of what they were dishing out to him. It was common for fever to set in the body of the victim of crucifixion. The fever would inflame the wounds and create an insatiable thirst. But Jesus refused this moisture. Interestingly, six hours later, once he had accomplished the full payment for our sin, he did take a sip of sour wine to moisten his mouth to be able to utter his final words. But here at the beginning of the crucifixion, he refused to drink it. Verse 24 says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Since Mark seems to be using Jewish time throughout his gospel, the third hour would be 9 o'clock in the morning. Jewish time began at 6 a.m., so it's 9 o'clock in the morning. That means that all the events of verses 15 through 23 took three hours because Pilate had given the sentence of crucifixion at 6 a.m. Now remember, Jesus was arrested very late at night after celebrating Passover with his disciples. 
Since that time, he had been subjected to three religious trials at the hands of the Jewish leaders and then three criminal trials at the hands of the Romans. Pilate finally gave in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders at 6 o'clock in the morning and gave the sentence for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus was scourged even before the sentence was given, then mocked, berated, abused, and led to the crucifixion spot over the next three hours. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was nailed to the cross. Mark says it so simply here at the end of verse 25, and they crucified him. That's all he says. He doesn't elaborate. Crucifixion was so severe that no Roman citizen could be subjected to its cruelty. Tacitus said it was a despicable death. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero said, quote, It was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments, the most cruel and horrifying death, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. It had originated with the Persians, but the Romans had perfected it as their primary form of capital punishment for slaves and foreigners. That's what they considered Jesus. The torture of crucifixion was so severe that our English word excruciating comes from the Latin word that means out of the cross. Ex, out of, cruciate, the cross. Excruciating means out of the cross. The physical and verbal abuse that Jesus suffered during all of this is beyond our understanding. But notice that Mark doesn't emphasize the human suffering. He doesn't go into some elaborate detail about how awful crucifixion was and how much Jesus suffered. Why? Probably two reasons. One is because everyone in that part of the world at that time knew exactly what crucifixion was. They knew how horrifying it was. They knew how torturous it was. And remember, Mark writes his gospel to a Roman audience. He's writing to Romans. And the Romans knew what crucifixion was. So he didn't need to describe it. He didn't need to go into any detail. That was one reason. But the other reason why Mark doesn't emphasize the physical horrors of this event is because the significant thing about the crucifixion is not what man did to Jesus. It's what God did to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of, his, of us all. God did this to Jesus. So what happened is important. But why it happened is just as important. Why did Jesus go through all of this? Why? It wasn't because he was a criminal. It wasn't because he had, he had broken the law of God. It wasn't because he had broken the law of man. It wasn't because he had done anything wrong. 
Several times, Pilate made it clear that Jesus wasn't guilty of any wrongdoing. Four times, he tried to let Jesus go. And even Judas admitted in Matthew 27, 4, that that Jesus was innocent. Even Judas, the betrayer, admitted that Jesus was innocent. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter quotes Isaiah 53.9, which says of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So again, I ask, why did Jesus go through all of this? Just look in the mirror. All we have to do is look in the mirror. He did this because of you and me. He did this for you and me. Ultimately, Judas didn't put him on that cross. The Jews didn't put him on that cross. The Romans didn't put him on that cross. You put him there. I put him there. Our sin put him there. 1 Peter 2.24 says of Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's why Jesus went through all of this. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore our sins in his broken, emaciated, battered body. Jesus was willing to do that for us, and God the Father was willing to allow his Son to do that for us. Beloved, it is completely beyond our ability to comprehend how how devastating I don't even know what word to use, how hurtful, how horrific this was for the Father and the Son. You and I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be sinless and yet experience the the Father's righteous wrath. And there's no way we can relate to what it would have been like for the Father who loves His Son beyond description to pour out His righteous wrath on His Son It's horrific to think about. And some, in their skewed thinking, even are willing to call it child abuse. That God the Father did that. What a warped perspective. The scriptural perspective is this. Greater love has no man than this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why Jesus did this. That's why God the Father did this. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, contemplating a story that you are probably very familiar with. This one time told by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we've read and seen and studied what happened. But we need to broaden our thinking to consider and remind ourselves why it happened. It happened because of our sin. 
It happened because there needed to be a divine remedy for our sin. And this was the divine remedy. God the Son being willing to drink the cup of the Father's wrath and God the Father being willing to pour out His righteous wrath on His innocent, precious Son. That's why this happened. It happened because of our sin. And thus, this is the only way, the only path to salvation. So many people in our culture consider it narrow, bigoted, when they hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They consider that intolerant, but it's because they are completely ignorant of what the Father and the Son did to provide redemption. There can be no other way. If there could be another way, then it was useless for the Father and the Son to go through this. But there is no other way. So if you're here today without Christ, if you're here today without salvation, if you're here today headed for a Christless eternity, understand that the only way you can be right with God is to embrace the crucified Christ to embrace His payment for your sin. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work for it. You can't do anything to merit it. All you can do is humbly, in simple childlike faith, receive as a free gift what the Father and the Son accomplished on the cross. So I urge you today to turn to Jesus Christ Let go of your own works, your own merit, your own attempts at righteousness, and just place yourself on the mercy of the God who was willing to sacrifice his son for our redemption. So, Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we, first of all, each individually would recognize the utter uselessness and worthlessness of our own attempts at salvation, our own attempts to be right with you. And instead, may we see very clearly in what the text has shown us this morning, may we see your solution to what appeared to be an impossible predicament, our sin and alienation from you. Father, break our hearts with this picture melt our hearts, and especially we pray for anyone here who is holding on to something else for salvation. May your Spirit pry their hands loose so that they would let go of it and instead embrace Jesus Christ and Him alone. We pray these things in His matchless name. Amen.